Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 81, recorded on August 24th of 2019, the Photo Geekery Show, where me, your host, Don Komarechka, digs up some of the juicy, geeky, techie stories in the photo industry on a weekly basis and uh, bat those ideas back and forth with a co-host. And one of my favorite co-hosts is back again. Steve Brassel joins the chair again as, uh, you know, we recorded last week, Steve, and it was so much fun and everybody loves having you on. And I've been crunched for time to find somebody else. So at the end of the last episode, I said, Steve, you want to do a double header? You want to come back on again? And no questions asked. You are back. Thank you so much for being on again. One of my favorite things to do any week is, first of all, just to chat with you, but just as much Photo Geek Weekly. I, I love participating in your show. And it's fun that, you know, I, I get to sit down and research some of these stories that I would otherwise kind of gloss over. And just for the purposes of recording this, doing a, a bit of extra research and diving into a, a lot of the stuff that just as a casual photo blog reader, I would not normally do. I enjoy the extra knowledge that I gain just for, you know, putting together and preparing for this podcast. It's, uh, well, it's a highlight of my week. Yeah, and and I'll agree. Like one of the stories that we're covering today was one of those things where being geeky, I'm sure you had the same reaction and that was, "Oh, I look at this and I understand this this how this technology works, but it makes you question yourself. It makes you go do a little research to go before I say anything on a microphone, let's make sure that I don't sound like a complete idiot." which exactly. is difficult. <laughs> it is. And, uh, you know, before we uh, get into any of that stuff, let's just take a step back to last episode and the feedback that we got on our opinions uh, on the uh, the photo ethics story that we had about street photography. And the feedback was nothing. There was no hate mail, no dissenting opinions whatsoever. So I, I think we accomplished our goal on that one. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with you. And it was interesting to me that even, you know, some people shared it, people from DP Review shared it, saying yeah, that Jordan, it was a- Jordan listens all the time. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? Yeah, and and I thanked him actually on Twitter for sharing it because it was nice because I loved the way that he worded it and that he used the word nuanced, which is kind of, I think, what we were both going for, right? We both had opinions, but we also understood that situation matters. So- we discussed it and shared our strong opinions while trying to be nuanced. So I, I, I really meant a lot to me that he saw that. Yeah, and uh, and I hope that everybody that, else that was that. A, a silent, uh, a silent um, um, agreeer uh, to the stuff that we were saying back and forth, trying to to play all corners and perspectives on that. But um, since then, Steve, uh, we've both been at photo conferences. Where have you been? I was at Photoshop World this week, which I absolutely had a blast at. I for me that most of the conferences are they have more to do with the social game, right? I like to go meet people. I like to go see what's happening with people that I already know or meet people that I don't know, but at Photoshop World and I'm going to do an episode on it. I don't know how fast I'll get get it edited. But part of it for Photoshop World for me that was just absolutely amazing was an evening with Joe McNally, which was about an hour and a half. It was about an hour presentation. And then about half an hour Q&A, and I could listen to him talk for hours. Those dulcet tones. He's just, really, <laughs> what he's been through and the way that he presents it was so good. Even the even the keynote, which I, he's I wouldn't very articulate. say yeah. that about the keynote, but Scott Kelby's keynote was great. It was I had a really good time at Photoshop World. 
And I was at um, uh, Out of Chicago puts on a um, a garden photography conference or a, a macro flower type conference uh, every year. And this one was at uh, Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania, just outside of uh, Kennett Square. And uh, our friend Chris Smith. Yes, Chris, uh, who did a uh, he put on a great show, and uh, I was so happy to be a part of that as a presenter, but also just kind of being a part of the the energy there. And you know, yeah. I'm sure this is true at Photoshop World and most conferences where anybody's participating, they get a spark of an idea, right? And uh, and that gets contagious because they might be able to execute that idea or whisper something next to you about that idea and it sparks something in you and so on and so forth. And there's a certain uh, contagious energy. You leave there just feeling, well, I mean, physically exhausted. Sure, there were a lot of hot days in the sun, but uh, mentally and, and spiritually just kind of... Um, uh, refreshed in a way, you know, you've, you just got more, uh, opportunities that you hadn't thought of before to, to go off and explore. And that's really, you're, you're describing signal bleed basically. Yeah. yeah so exactly. you, you've got people up there that are doing, you know, hopefully at least usually great presentations that are inspiring. And sometimes like I, I mentioned the keynote, you know, normally a keynote is more of a welcome and it's not a lesson per se, but even out of that keynote, something happened and Scott said a few things that made me go, really? Didn't think about that. And I pulled one or two things out of everything that made me say, I want to go try that. Awesome. And uh, how many people attend uh, Photoshop World, or at least the one that you were I in? wish I knew. And I actually tried to find out. I asked a few people I thought would know. And the response that I consistently got was, I really don't know. But <laughs> it it seemed... It seemed light to me this year. It did not seem at all as busy as years past, but it seemed more, I don't want to say more engaged, but the people that I interviewed, because I would just, I, I, I tried to test myself. If I see somebody walking by, can I tell whether it's their first time or not? And so I would grab them and say, hi, I'm Steve with Behind the Shot. Do you mind if I, I do a little interview with you? And 100% of the time, I nailed somebody that was there for the first time. And, <laughs> That's awesome. And it was really interesting to say to them, because what I wanted to know from the first timers was, does this conference, and this goes with any conference, really, does it meet your expectations being a first timer of what you envisioned you would get out of it? And uh, the overall response was yes. One guy had a really interesting take on, he wished that he could take a normal program class, like the pre-cons that were four hours. He wished that instead of one hour class here, one hour class there, that he could go to a four hour class Oh, interesting. and really immersion, you know, mm -hmm. which was an interesting suggestion, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that kind of becomes a, a sort of a half day workshop. And I've, I've done those before with a lot of people um, at uh, the Out of Longwood Gardens conference I had. It was only two and a half hours. Typically in my own studio, I make it three hours. So we had to uh, cut introductions and speed things along a little bit. But it was water droplet refraction photography, which is something of a magic trick. I know you play with magic yourself, Steve. And uh, it's, part of the allure is people have no idea how it's done until they see it done. And then it's a simple trick in the sense that in that time, just about everybody can see how all the ingredients fit together, and then they can go amaze their friends and family afterwards and uh, and and take that technical prowess of learning that in studio and apply that to whatever flair and creativity to design a better subject uh, that you then photograph. So the artistry takes multiple forms. Um, and I, I could... 
I could extend that. I could make that a five or six hour workshop and just keep diving deeper and deeper into that. And sometimes that type of deep dive is useful. But in a big conference, you hit a saturation point. And especially if you're learning from multiple vectors all at the same time, uh, a uh, an extensive, uh, you know, dive into one of these topics, uh, no matter how much of a sponge you are, you will hit a saturation point and, and right. you might not be able to retain or, or an oversaturation point, really. Yeah. And then you just start forgetting things and it becomes almost white noise when you're trying to remember it all afterwards. And that's not helpful either. So there's always a balance, but uh, glad we both had fun at conferences. And um, uh, on one of the last days, I was digging through the news because I knew we'd be recording this here on uh, on a Saturday after we're both back. And uh, kind of a slow news week overall. Uh, but from what I was able to to dig into, there is some juicy bits from a technology perspective. And uh, let's get into the stories here. So the first story, the headliner uh, reported by DP Review, uh, ProGrade launches Refresh Pro, a program for monitoring and refreshing your memory cards. And I'll just read the opening bit here before we get into our own opinions. Uh, ProGrade Digital, uh, which they are um, uh, former uh, Lexar executives, I believe, that, that branched off and created their own memory card brand. Um and it seems like that they're doing a good job from everything that I've heard, although the pedigree has yet to be properly established, which there's no shortcut to time. It just has to be around for a few years before uh, people really can see uh, how. But the uh, people running it have a resume. They do have a resume. Exactly. Uh, so uh, ProGrade Digital uh, has launched Refresh Pro, a new program designed to monitor the health of specific ProGrade digital memory cards and, quote, refresh your card's performance to factory new condition, according to ProGrade Digital. The software available now for Windows computers with a Mac OS version coming soon works with all of ProGrade Digital's memory card readers and all cards that feature the R logo on the front, uh, as shown in the below image. And there's a little logo that has this little up upwards arrow inside of a stylized R. Uh, and if you check out the ProGrade website, every single one of their memory cards in every format on their website now feature this little refresh logo. So this is across the board, uh, might not be compatible with older ones, but for sure, everything that is currently available from them now includes this particular symbol. So um, at first glance, I'm skeptical uh, in terms of what they're doing and what they're claiming. Uh, so. Steve, what are they claiming? Okay, so first of all, skeptic number two here. My somebody, Terrell on Twitter actually mentioned this and brought this uh, article to my attention. That is, and when I first looked at it, it was this is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. I think is what I said to him, something to that effect. But what they're doing is claiming that there are two tools or two functions: health monitoring and sanitizing. And therein to me kind of lies the the issue with quick judging this particular thing that they're doing. My biggest complaint is the health monitoring I'm okay with, right? We'll get into that in a minute. But the sanitizing operation and what they say is, and you read it, is the sanitizing operation performs a deep clean restoring of the card to, and I'm quoting, its original factory performance. And when you make that kind of a claim, people are reading it thinking that they're returning 
a memory card, which everybody, or at least most people know that these types of solid state cards deteriorate over time. They have a fixed lifespan. They have a lifespan based on how many reads and writes you can do to the card. And then the card will simply die. There's no way to reverse engineer that it is actually deteriorating the the material that's being used. Not by using a fundamentally different technology that we it, don't have available yet. Exactly. It just is not going to happen. And so if you said to me, which is when you go to their website, what they're really claiming, if you said to me, it improves performance, okay, I'm not going to fault you on that claim because it most likely will, to a point, improve some performance. But returning it to factory performance makes people think factory condition. And that's a completely different thing. Right. And uh, and so when when you take a look at the health and the sanitized operations, I got thinking, OK, well, how does this actually work? Because, um, uh, you know, we memory cards have protocols that they work with. They you know, communicate back and forth in order to read, write uh, and erase data. And one of the things that uh, that kind of stuck out to me is just reading this article, a light bulb went off because the protocols that I know that hold on one second. Do you want a sound effect for a light bulb? (laughs) No, thank you. Okay, Uh, I do appreciate the offer, but um, I I was thinking, okay, some of the protocols that these uh, memory cards use are based very specifically on uh, just generic computer technology. Compact flash cards are based on the ATA standard. Um, CFast cards are based on the SATA standard. And uh, uh, XQD are a PCI Express based. CF Express, which we will be hopefully enjoying cards that use that format soon. And you're talking, still- tra- at this point, you're talking transport protocols. I'm talking transport protocols, but I'm also talking about commands that you can issue to uh, to a drive using these uh, these bus protocols. Um, and one thing that was very helpful as soon as computers started to use SSDs was the trim command. Yep. Steve, are you familiar with what trim is? Yep. What is trim? So trim is basically what they're doing here. That, that Really what they're talking about is the trim command. There's two commands that you can utilize on most SSD drives, which is erase and trim. And what trim does is it is a remapping so that when you have an area of a card that's been written to and erased, a standard erase only erases a FAT table, a file allocation table, and tells the the device this information is still available. But it can be at a performance hit. A trim command will literally rearrange data to free up those areas more clearly, to erase for lack of a better phrase, remnants of data. Right. Well, uh, and SSDs function in a fundamentally different way than traditional spinning disk hard drives. Correct. And I found a great description of this. And I'm going to read verbatim to some degree from uh, Pro Storage. It's getprostorage.com. And I'll have the link to this in the show notes as well as the story. Um, and it talks about three different things. One of them is uh, how SSDs slow down how they deal with what's called garbage collection, and what trim is all about. So um, effectively, and I might paraphrase here a little bit as we go through here, um, but what happens here is um, in order, I'm going to read a quote directly, and then I might opine a bit. Uh, In order to understand why SSDs get slower over time, it's important to know how the file systems work. Every file system has its own way of doing things, but generally speaking, when you delete a file, that file isn't really gone. 
the OS does not typically erase the storage blocks that were previously inhabited by the file. Instead, the OS, the operating system, uh, simply marks the blocks as being available and stores that information in a directory file. This is a file allocation table uh, file, in the simplest terms. Table, right. uh, and of course, different file systems will handle it different ways. But And, and um, let, me, let me just interject here really quick. For those people who don't understand a FAT table, a fi- which, which I don't mean FAT format, but a file allocation table, think of when you go to a mall where you have 100 stores. If I'm going to make up a name here, but if, you know, John's betting goes out of business and closes their doors, they may go up to the directory that's in the middle of the mall and put a piece of black tape over it indicating that that space isn't used anymore. But if you walk up to the store and they just locked their doors yesterday, all their furniture and everything is still inside. That directory that's on a banner in the middle of you walking through a mall, that's the file allocation table and that's all they're putting that tape over. Exactly, exactly. Uh, And so the file still exists in those blocks on the disk, but the directory file lists them as empty so that they are invisible to your computer and they're ready to be written over. It's listed as free data. So if somebody else wants to move into that spot in the mall, they are freely able to do so. And now a new store is uh, is is up and running. Uh, And so with hard drives, this method of deleting a file wasn't an issue. The operating system would simply uh, mark the blocks as being available and the hard disk could write new data over top of the old data. SSDs can't do that. And by virtue of memory cards effectively being SSDs at this point, uh, for SSDs, the storage blocks have to be erased before they can be overwritten. Uh, uh, It is this requirement for erasing previously used blocks that cause SSDs to become slower over time. And then there's a subheading here about taking out the SSD garbage. I'll summarize this. Basically, uh, because you don't want to erase everything and rewrite everything in an entire block, which is many multiple pages of data, um, you simply mark that as being stale and rewrite the data into a new place because it's faster to do that. And so this is something that the operating system doesn't really see. This happens at a controller level where things are marked as stale when it's trying to to move on and say, just we're going to forget about that for now and I'll do the garbage collection on that at some later date. We're just going to mark it as stale. Well, and much of the technology that exists, the drives will do that automatically on their own. They'll do garbage collection or trim. They'll do that on their own, but part of that is based on the bus. Exactly. Uh, and so uh, on, a, on a hard drive, there's usually a fixed correlation between, and I'm reading again from the article, between the file systems clusters and the disk sectors. But on an SSD where there's no fixed correlation and where in-use pages have to be tracked and picked up by garbage collection, it can be a big deal to sort all of this data out. Pages containing deleted files look like valid pages, and they keep getting collected along with actually good pages. So the trim command allows the operating system to communicate at a controller level to specifically isolate and flag things as stale information so that it doesn't get recollected with uh, with the good stuff and it just gets taken out with the trash, right? And so right. this is effectively what trim is all about. Now, if you want to uh, to take an, uh, a regular SSD or by virtue, we're talking about memory cards here, you could do a full format on a card. Uh, and that just wipes everything to zeros. The controller understands that there's no data. The operating system sees things as no data. It's literally zeros across the board. Uh, 
Um, but don't do that because that artificially wears out your memory card uh, just by the virtue of you're trying to refresh it. But these things have a, uh, a finite lifespan. It's as if you filled up the entire memory card to the hilt, shooting out you know, on a safari or whatever, uh, and then you've got all of that data. But it's a wear cycle on uh, on the memory cells. And you Which don't is want what to- I mentioned earlier, that they have a fixed lifespan of reads and writes. Exactly. So you don't want to necessarily do that. Um, however, pretty well every memory card format uh, supports the trim command. Uh, even compact flashcards, not the earlier ones, but the, the last generation of compact flash will support it. Uh, so does XQD, CFast, and CF Express. They all support this system. It's not just that uh, ProGrade has enabled this wonderful feature. This is inherent to that technology as a whole. The only odd one out are SD cards. And so I pulled up the trim command uh, from Wikipedia and it lists uh, the ATA protocols, uh, SCSI, uh, NVMe, etc. But it also lists SD slash MMC, multimedia card. Who have heard of those in the last uh, decade? But hey, it's still a standard, I guess. Um, and I'll quote from Wikipedia here saying that the multimedia card and SSD erase command, uh, CMD38 command, provides similar functionality to the ATA trim command, although it requires that erased blocks are overwritten with either zeros or ones. Furtherance to that, the eMMC 4.5 defines a discard suboperation that more closely matches the ATA trim in that the contents of the discarded blocks can simply be considered indeterminate. It's like, okay, there's data there, but I don't care about it. I don't have to write it to zeros or ones. I could just leave it alone. And that's fairly close to what trim is so long as the controller can label it as such. So the SD cards, uh, so long as they're well-designed, the controller can understand this command. uh, And that's probably the route that ProGrade is taking with their SD cards, uh, understanding what the underlying control system is going to be for that. So not every SD card uh, would be compatible with those kinds of commands, at least not the uh, eMMC 4.5 standard of, uh, of whatever controller protocols are within that. But um, let's be clear, it's also not only ProGrade cards that are. This there is are, the and, thing. And they mention, they mention cards and readers that are compatible. And that's another key is most card readers are USB and most USB card readers do not support a lot of those commands. Of course, because the, the USB is another uh, level of uh, obfuscation, right? You've got uh, some ambiguity where a USB controller can only send certain commands to uh, to a memory card. It's like plugging in uh, a portable hard drive via a USB port rather than plugging it directly into a SATA bus inside of a desktop computer. Right, which, which is why I mentioned it's bus specific earlier. But here's an interesting thing. When I started looking at this, my first thought was, They're claiming, if you go look at their website, they actually made the comment that CFAS cards have supported the sanitized command since their inception. So like you, I started looking around and started realizing they're talking about an erase and trim command, which existed for SSDs, you know, for the length of SSDs existence. So I went looking at sanitizing CFAS cards and I ended up on the SanDisk site. Now, SanDisk are discs that I use, are, are... S, uh, Me as well, uh, yeah. SD card and and, and uh, compact flash cards that I use. Here's the quote from their site, which I found actually interesting for two words that are in there that I didn't expect to see. It is recommended that CFast card users regularly full format and refresh, parentheses, sanitize their card. 
sanitizing the card returns the CFast card to a, quote, fresh, end quote, state by removing previous recording traces, which is what we've been talking about, mm-hmm. which restores maximum video recording performance. So I want to I want to dissect that for a minute, because first of all, they say full format and refresh their cards regularly. And it's not, I mean, full format could necessarily be a refresh command, with the exception being that if you full format the data that is available to the operating system to write zeros or ones to, that does not include over provisioning data that would have to be accessed on a different level, right? Well, there's that. Plus, they are recommending that regularly you format your card, which is aware cycle. I mean, I, I, and I wouldn't. I mean, okay. So I, I tested this out with a, a 64 gigabyte memory card uh, just to see how long a full format would take on that. It took four and a half minutes. So it's not a. Uh, how big was the card? 64 gigabytes. Okay. So that's and, and how, what did you do? Put it in your computer and format it in Windows. Yeah, and it, I just went full format, and it just took four and a half minutes to complete. Now, that's not a make whole sure, lot of Make time. sure when you put it back in your camera, obviously, that you format it in the device. Right, because yeah. it's got to create its file structure and everything else. Right. Um, but it uh, it made it seem, when I was reading the ProGrade ar- uh, article, that I'd be waiting for an hour for the thing to finish. And maybe, yes, if I had a two terabyte memory card, like people have two terabyte SSDs, it might take an extensively long time to do it. Um, but... Yes, I own 128 and 256 gig memory cards. If I was to be okay, doing... Okay, so that's eight minutes. Right. So, but, and if I were to be doing a mission-critical shoot, something that I needed the utmost performance out of any memory card that I currently own, and that is worth a wear cycle for me, I might just do that anyhow, just par for the course, because I only get one shot at it. Uh, and you know, if you're getting paid to shoot uh, you know, high-end video for a documentary, or even a wedding, for that matter, I mean, you're getting paid thousands of dollars to shoot a wedding. Uh, is a wear cycle on your memory card the cost of doing business to ensure that things are at their highest performance? Maybe that's true. However, I think, <laughs> Steve, have you ever had a problem where your your cards just notoriously slow down to a point where you're noticing this and you're thinking, ah, drat, I've well, got... See, okay, so now you just hit the one big bold sentence in my head. I do format my cards regularly. Because I simply, now I do quick formats usually. Mm-hmm. I don't care about the wear cycle. As it gets to the point where I think the cards are going to go bad, I'll just buy new cards. They're on B&H deal zone all the time, fairly inexpensively. There it's you not, go with the deal It's zone the cost again. of doing business. But here's the deal. <laughs> Most of this, okay, so one of the quotes in the comments that somebody wrote was, $30 is cheap to help ensure that you don't have a card act funny at a wedding. Let's be clear here. This technology is not saying that your card won't act funny. No, right? it's just you can sanitize that- your card and it could still fail. It, they're not yep. say- what they're saying here. They're not talking about reliability of the card. They're talking about performance of the card. Your card could still fail. My problem with this entire pitch is when you release a new computer and you say we've boosted the specs, the new MacBook Pro is fifteen percent faster than the old MacBook Pro. Okay, there's a performance gain. When you buy this video card over this video card, it's they are not referencing for this $30 or if I, on my own, use an erase and trim command at the command line, what percentage am I getting? Am they don't, I going to label see a even in a worst case boost? scenario? Worst case scenario, what is it going to be? How how badly messed up could a card be? And you know the marketing people could easily do this. They could create a hypo- a hypothetical scenario where a card is so horribly uh, convoluted in its own mismanaged data that it doesn't know how to sort itself through, and 
And when marketing people want to promote something, they're going to create a worst case scenario like that. If they didn't do that, well, how much is the gain actually going to be here fundamentally? Because if in a worst case scenario, you don't even want to publish what those numbers are, then maybe this is just inco- inconsequential. I mean, we don't know. I'm, or I'm maybe it's not here. measurable. I mean, it's, it's possible it's not measurable. Again, it's a solution to no problem to me. If you're going to tell me that by giving you $30 of my money, I am going to get a performance boost, then I'm, I'm interpreting that as you're saying I'm going to see a performance boost. Okay, give me some numbers because most cards that I own the specs greatly exceed what I'm going to record my 1080p video at or my 4K video at. So I understand theoretically it's it's not the scam some people have called it. These commands do exist and they do exist for a reason. I just think that they're they're trying to part people with their money. There's one part of this, though, that I do want to touch on. Again, it's two tools. It's the sanitize and it's the health check. The health check, okay, that's kind of cool. It should be a free tool. If you want to sell pro-grade cards over SanDisk cards, give me the health check tool for free that goes yellow, green, or red based on history of reads and writes. Based on how to, much provisioning data is left over, and maybe you're running out of that. And, and Exactly. Then, give me an idea. Okay, it's time to replace this, this card. And maybe when you say to me, you've only got 10% life less, left, you should replace this card, maybe I'll buy a new pro-grade card. Because they're giving you the heads up, right? And that could yeah. be valuable information. Uh, but the, uh, the the refresh command, I don't know. Uh, blue crystals, my friend. Blue crystals. <laughs> Definitely blue crystals, yeah. Uh, and that that is a reference to a previous episode. If you don't know what I referenced then, then go back and listen to that. But um, still, it, it's nice to see at least some level of innovation. I mean, the, the health check is great. It's not innovation. The, the commands well, the, the health check is something that we didn't have access to on a consumer level without getting overly geeky and typing in okay, some Linux commands. Okay, I'll give you that one. And, yeah. Uh, uh, but and, you know what? You know what? For 30 bucks on this software, I would rather just say to myself, if I'm a professional wedding videographer, my standard rule of thumb might be that just like I do with network clients with their backups, if they're backing up to hard drives those or, or in the old days of tapes, right? If they're backing up to tapes, you replace all your tapes yearly. Well, what's the lifespan of tapes? Well, they're archivable for seven years, let's say. Why yeah, am I don't replacing them yearly? Because you don't want to risk it. Yeah, yeah. Cost of uh, doing well, What's interesting, too, is uh, just as a, as a brief aside before we move on to the next story, they're saying that a Mac OS uh, version of the software is coming. But if I remember correctly, and I haven't looked up to the latest versions, um, Mac OS X did not support trim on third-party hard drives. It would support it on its own operating system control drive. Um, but you would have to do some very serious and complicated hack. Well, not complicated, but you'd be opening up security holes and all sorts of stuff if you wanted to uh, enable uh, third-party trim support, which is required by the software if it's using those same protocols and commands uh, in order to have the software running. So they might be working around that, trying to find a solution to it. Um, but by uh, by default, natively, the operating system, again, I haven't looked at the latest version, uh, did not support the trim command. So they might be uh, facing some difficulties there, even making it useful for anybody outside of a Windows environment. Yeah, and and I actually should know the answer to that, and I don't. I mean, basically, you're talking it's it's a Unix operating system. The trim command exists. The in you know Catalina's coming out this fall. 
current operating system. They may have locked it down, but I'm sure that you can go in and remove those protections fairly easily at the command line. Yeah, well, I mean, last time I looked it up, it was Yosemite, which is uh, you know long in the tooth now for sure. So uh, yeah. th- there may have been some uh, some advancements within that, but again, you'd have to make sure that uh, the operating system does support the uh, the commands that you are trying to use. Okay, Steve, I think we've uh, we've opined on that one uh, uh, significantly, and people can make their own opinions now that we've c- tried to dissect things and show all the innards and, and the parts that are are working to make that software work, whether or not it's useful. Uh, let's move on to something, um, I don't want to say more pedestrian, but definitely not as uh, as as deep into the weeds as we were. Uh, again, from DP Review, Canon Australia shares accidental first look at the EOS M6 Mark II and the EOS 90D cameras. So this happens periodically where uh, usually it's a, a subsidiary, not like uh, Canon Japan or US, but one of the, um, the, the secondary countries. I've seen it happen, I think, from uh, Germany or the UK or uh, in this case, it's Australia. Uh, just you know, they've got everything queued up, ready to go for uh, whenever the uh, the embargo is lifted and something slips. Some uh, some employee accidentally hits the the green light go button, and uh, for a very brief period of time, we get a glimpse as to what is coming. So. There's no, there's no question that a company like Canon is going to come up with a, a refreshed lineup. Uh, their cameras are always going to be replaced so long as they are still in business. Uh, so the latest refresh, uh, from what we can see, and we don't have all the information, mind you, um, but uh, what is your initial thoughts on the next generation of the M6 and the successor to the ADD? The, the M6 looks interesting to me. There were a couple of weird things in the video where they do a splash screen at the beginning and they list two different frames per second, but they don't give any context. They listed 14 and they also listed 30. I had to watch the rest of the video to kind of figure out what they're talking about. Specs look good. It's three and a half, uh, 32 and a half megapixels. And, and digit- 4K 30p shooting too. Uh, 4K so- 30p shooting to 120 frames per, per second at 1080p. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing jumped out at me. I'm curious if you noticed this. When I had Scott Bourne on my show, his Olympus cameras do a pre-recording type thing for shots. Where oh, before I like you that. hit the, yeah, I forget what they call it in Olympus mode. Somebody's going to probably put it in the in the comments. But before you hit the shutter button, it's already recording some shots. If you enable the mode, it's not doing it all the time unless you have that mode enabled. Well, this actually does this pre-shooting as well. They show a series of a dog jumping in the water and kind of indicate when the button is actually being pushed. And I thought that that was actually kind of interesting. It's got IAF for the for the M6, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in. Um, it's got some really neat specs. Two that leaped at me. EV is minus five, mm-hmm. so which you have- isn't that unusual in a mirrorless, but for a Canon... Well, and, and it's the, also not not a flagship product. This isn't the the flagship EOS R or whatever its successor is going to be. This right. is the smaller sensor designed as a compact camera. Uh, decidedly not a flagship product in comparison to their full frame. Uh, but the fact that these features are trickling down to the smaller bodies, I'm very happy with. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, but then the other one was it listed self-portrait as though there is a selfie mode yeah, but in without a camera. tilting screen, well, it does have a tilting screen, I think, to some degree. From what I can see, it looks like it does lift out. But then I'm not sure because if it does, it's more than just the screen. It's the entire back plane of it. And I didn't see it in action to have anything useful for that. 
Yeah, it, it was really kind of odd to me. And then, of course, it had the removable viewfinder, an OLED viewfinder, which when that was on, you could actually use your finger on the touchscreen for focus through the viewfinder as well. Well, that seems weird. I mean, you're looking... Well, not through- touching the viewfinder, but you're looking through the viewfinder, but then you can touch to, to focus as well. Uh, but if you're looking through the viewfinder, how do you see where you're touching? You probably, I don't know if it translates it to the screen. That's the way I read it. it to me, it was weird because your face is against the, the screen. Well, exactly. So I don't know how you're going to touch it, it, but that's the way the video made it look to me. All right. Um, so I, I'm glad that the uh, the M system from Canon is still alive and well. I don't know if they're really going to be putting a ton of research and development dollars into it uh, to, to like storm the market, per se. They need to kind of keep this one sort of as a status quo, in my, uh, in my opinion. Um, uh, but what was also very interesting is the EOS 90D, which, again, is a flapping mirror style camera um, that... These things are not going to be around forever. I mean, Canon has two mirrorless platforms and their traditional EF system. Um, but before we talk about any of the specs per se, how long do you think the EOS double-digit D platform is going to be along? Because they, I mean, they could come out with a 95D, they could come out with a 99D, but is is this really the 90D? Is it going to be the end of the line? My well. First of all, let me go back to the M6 and say one thing we didn't say, which oh, is sure. we don't know the price yet. Yeah. So the price on that, when you start looking at the the EOS R, that's going to be a big differentiator on, on whether or not any of those specs mean anything to me. Okay, it's got IAF. Cool. But you want $3,000 for it? No, not going to happen, right? I mean, we don't know. Yeah, they got to price 90D, it according to the market. The, say that again? They have to price it according to the market. Yeah, I mean, one would hope, but it's canon. <laughs> Uh, the 90D, here's my thing on SLRs. I'm an SLR shooter, but for the last couple of years, I have seriously wanted to to look at making a switch to mirrorless. I don't want to replace all my Canon glass. So the R-series sounds interesting, but you and I had a long conversation when it was announced on the shortcomings to me of the R. I don't see DSLR as we know it today. Other than extreme pro hands existing five years from now. And and they're trying to, to make this thing an upgrade path for people. And you can see that in the way that they're specking it out. It's going to use the same battery grip as the 70D and the 80D. So you, right, don't, have right, to, right. you don't have to reinvest in that. Uh, and they're b- building in features that I, I don't know if the 80D had it, but it has a 100% coverage uh, in, in the viewfinder, which previously you would have had to have gone to like a 1D series body to get like a between a 98 and 100% coverage. Right. Uh, and the fact that they are engineering that into... What is effectively a prosumer camera, uh, because I would say the professional cameras would be the 75D, even the 60, the full frame bodies and the 1D series. Um, but if you wanted to get the EOS 90D and you were a professional, you can still use it. It's a professional camera, but just in terms of the pricing in its class, um, a prosumer that would be looking at this, they don't make, they don't care if it's a 98 or a hundred percent coverage, a professional might, but how many professionals are looking at these cameras? It it almost seems like they're just throwing everything into this device in order to make it palatable. Well, the, the last word there is the key. They've got to throw it in to make it palatable, even to prosumers and consumers, because consumers are looking at numbers. They're looking at spec sheets that they don't understand. And they're comparing number to number, the thing in here that was interesting to me that will help everybody, regardless of level, is 45 
focus points, but they're all cross type. That was interesting. Usually they don't do all cross type. But now again, hold on, we, let's distill that uh, cross type uh, autofocus is the the highest uh, class of phase detect autofocus that Canon offers uh, within their cameras, uh, which does phase detection both in a horizontal and a vertical direction. Sometimes I believe they have a diagonal direction as well, depending on the type yes. of camera. Uh, but these cross type uh, autofocus points are the cream of the crop and every single one across the sensor uh, or the autofocus sensor per se, because it's usually they don't cover the entire range from corner to corner usually there's a subset towards the uh the the center of the uh of the sensor that has them and it is the best you can put into it well and usually when you get the further you get away from center the more likely you are to have either only a vertical or only a horizontal focus point which depending on what you're shooting can matter on you getting focus or not right it's Keep. Let's. I don't think we said it, but this is a crop sensor, so it's a 1.6 crop standard standard APS-C for for Canon. Ten frames a second was interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean that that used to be in the realm of when I was shooting with the uh, the one DX. I believe that was 12 frames per second. And and then, so this is a, a very, very close to that. And that particular camera, uh, Canon is still supporting with their latest, uh, you know, uh, firmware updates that are coming uh, down the, uh, the development pipeline to fix some security flaws. So it's still a, um, uh, a current product in, in, in their support structure. And the fact that something that is kind of its, its little brother uh, is, uh, is hitting it out of the park to the same as that big gun it's uh i don't know it just seems like they're trying to pack so much into this well in every and then possible they're cutting way it in, in, they're cutting it or seemingly we don't know it's not out yet but you know the one we just talked about the m right the 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 new m6 mark ii that was minus five ev this canon they didn't mention this in the dp review article but canon uh rumors has more specs in fact they have what they list as all the specs for the 90d it lists it as minus three. But here was the interesting one to me. My complaint, I'm a Canon shooter. So before anybody yells at me for hating Canon, I'm allowed to. I'm a Canon shooter. <laughs> one of the things that they list on Canon rumors for this is the focus modes. And they say spot AF and one point AF zone, AF large zone as well. Or one, uh, uh, so, you know, one point zone, large zone. One thing they don't mention that my Canon 5Ds have, my 5D3 and my 5D4, that I use is AF point expansion. So AF point expansion is where you select a focus point and then you can choose a subset or all of the surrounding focus points to assist you. Right. So the, they don't the nine points in, around that one or correct. an even larger area so that, yeah, you want here. But what if well, you not even a larger to- area? The nine points in a focus assist would be all of it. Right. So it's either just above, below, left and right or the full square right around it. And when you're doing AF point expansion, people think that those other points are constantly focusing and they are not. What it's for is if the camera thinks your subject left the main focus point, it will then utilize those to assist the main focus point. So they're literally just assisting. They're not full focus points running at all times on their own. It's not a zone, right? Yeah. I use this for music photography all the time. I'm guessing it has it. It has to have it, but I'm not seeing it listed in any of the specs. 
And that would be a killer to me. I wouldn't buy it if it didn't. Well, okay. Uh, Well, let's hope that it has it. But one thing that I remember reading, and I I don't have an article reference in front of me right now, but that Canon was pulling out uh, the 24P video modes from some of their cameras. Uh, In the specs, because you seem to have uh, found the Canon Rumors article that has more, do you know if these have a 24 frame per second video mode or not? The only thing that I saw, and I'm going to pull it up real fast because I have it up here, but the only one that I saw was that it's 4K at 30, or 120 at 1080. And let me just pull up the specs It'd here. I'd be really very quick curious to see from the, these new crop of cameras that that one sort of product line differentiation to make their cinema cameras uh, more desirable to the professionals would be pulling out uh, the cinema feel that is created with the 24 frame per second video modes. Okay, so here we have movie uh, types and movie size. Full HD. Uh, let's see, 1920 by 1080 at 120 frames a second. HD, which is basically 720 at 60 frames a second. HDR 1080 at 30 frames a second. I see no mention of 24. Very interesting. I mean, uh, the original 5D Mark II, which I still own. I own, actually I own two of them. Mo- one's modified for infrared and one's modified for ultraviolet. Um and uh, I, I've shot some ultraviolet video on that 24 frames per second. In fact, the, the very first firmware for that camera was literally 24 frames per second. And then they adjusted it to be the 23.96 or 97 frames per second. 24.97. Uh, well, 23.97. I'm sorry, 23.97, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, that, that is the, the cinema standard for that. And there's actually a really great video that I think we might have mentioned at some point in the past as to why the heck that is 23.97 and not 24 from a guy on YouTube. I forget his name, but he, he does the, it was stand the up, coolest video. He does the stand up maths channel. And I'm going to dig up that video and I'm going to put it in the show notes because it's so much fun. I, I mean, I watched it, it made perfect sense. And then an hour later, I'm like, I don't remember any of that, but it, it made sense when I was watching it. Uh, but let's be honest. Honest, if you're a serious videographer and want the film type look, you're not going to do 30. You're going to go for 24 and you can't if you grab this camera. Well, apparently. Now we're going to have to wait until the proper like, announcement yeah. and, and everything else. But if that's if that's the case, I think Canon is kind of shooting themselves in the foot by not offering 24, trying to upsell people. People are just going to hop brands at this well, point. Why would you leave that out? It's got to end up in there. It has to. Why would you leave that out? But give me 45 cross types. Give me dust and water resistance. Why, why would you give me these seemingly prosumer features, but leave out a key, simple, software-only video? Cinema feature. versus still. They want this to be a still camera that has video features because you can't sell a camera without video features these days. You have to have it in there. But if you want it to be a uh, a well-regarded cinema camera, well, there's a dollar value associated with that. I mean, that's why Canon came out with the 1DC um, that recorded uh, full sensor 4K footage, and they refused to publish any firmware updates to that camera. If you wanted to have a firmware update to a 1DC, you would have to send your camera back to Canon because fundamentally the hardware inside the processors and the sensor was exactly the same as the 1DX and they didn't want people well, to reverse engineer. Well, and that engineer. to me is what Canon that's what Canon to me is famous for, right? I always go back to the fact that if I move my focus point and I'm in spot metering, the spot meter is always on the center point unless you're on a 1D series. 
Yeah. Right. So and a five D four. I've had people argue with me. Oh, I shoot in spot meter mode on a five D four, and they move their focus point all the way to the upper right corner, and they think it's metering off their focus point, and it's not. It is not. No. And, and that's uh, software. That's a that's an intentional handicap. Well, and and so these first party manufacturers, they they want to make sure that they have class differentiation from their products. I get it. Right. You want to pay more for more features, uh, but at a certain point, you alienate your customer base. Um, and, uh, let, let's bridge this to the next story here. Cause, uh, where I'm just c- kind of keeping an eye on the clock. Uh, we like to, to, to banter back and forth, uh, well past the hour, Steve, and we'll probably be that way on this episode. But, um, uh, the next story, this one was very interesting for me because I talk about first party manufacturers, uh, in, you know, in, in a good light in terms of, I mean, they make the camera. Um, I don't recommend first party extension tubes because they have no optics in them. Um, third party lenses have come a long way. Uh, Sigma's art series is a great example of that. You don't need to buy a Canon or Nikon or Sony first party lens, but I've always traditionally recommended a first party battery, uh, because I have heard some horror stories from, I've even seen students in workshops plug in a battery that they had completely charged the night before and they put it in their camera and it's a dud. Uh, for whatever reason, the quality control isn't there. The, they cut corners in manufacturing. And even some people uh, will directly mimic the first party batteries. And so you get you get these fraudulent products that are sold on marketplace websites like Amazon, eBay, that look and claim to be first party batteries. But on closer inspection, the little serial number stamp is not actually uh, debossed into the thing. It's printed on it. And little triggers like that can tell you that it's a uh, that it's a fake battery versus the authentic thing. But overall, I've always recommended people just, you know what, for the cost involved, um, buy the first party battery. You know what you're going to get. It's going to be a good thing. Well, uh, also from DP Review here, Nightcore announces a, quote, world's first smart battery for Sony full frame mirrorless cameras. Now, if any other company had said this, I would be very skeptical. But Nightcore is a company that I know. I buy flashlights from them all the time. I buy batteries from them all the time for those flashlights. And they perform very admirably. In fact, um, they make um, some of the uh, beefier uh, LED super bright flashlights will use a format of battery that's bigger than double A's. It's the 18650 format. Um, And they actually, and I've, I've bought a lot of them. They have a micro USB charging port in the battery itself. So you don't have to buy a battery charger for these batteries for this obscure format you might lose. Or that win. would be worth it alone. It's really useful. And so I've enjoyed their products for many years. I've got flashlights from them ranging between around you know 800 to 4,000 lumens. And they have been rock solid, uh, well-engineered. I've even dropped some of them in like uh, down flights of concrete stairs and they've come out the other end still functional. Um, and so knowing that they make great hardware, and great batteries, they're making this smart battery for a Sony camera. What does this mean in terms of a a smart battery? Well, there's a couple of features here. Uh, There's an app that you can connect to the battery wirelessly, and you can see the wear level on the battery. We were talking about wear levels on memory cards earlier. That's a thing, and it's great to have a health check on that. But it's also great to have that on your battery, too. We know batteries don't uh, hold as much of a charge over time, uh, just like memory cards will wear out. And having your finger on the pulse of that 
uh, in not just like a percentage number. You get a voltage readout. You get a uh, percentage of how how um, the um, the read is going to be um, when it was first used. How <laughs> when the warranty is valid until yeah. um, warranty valid until date. Yeah, th- this is really useful. Uh, and also, you know, if it is a, a little bit drained, it has uh, an estimated time until full in the app. So if you're unplugging the battery and plugging it into a charger, you know roughly how long it's going to take even before you do so. So you can plan yourself around that. Um, now, I don't have access to the app. I hope it's robust, but something like this might be buggy. There's no way to tell at this point. Let's just assume that it will just tell you all of this information and it will be valuable for you to organize your batteries, uh, sort them all out before a shoot, know exactly what you're going into to make sure that uh, you've got the juice to get you through and uh, cross my fingers have quality that mimics the first party battery cell. They they list that it is the exact same uh, milliamp hour capacity as the Sony batteries, which is 2280 milliamp hours um, and uh, a power rating of uh, of 16.4 watt hours uh, at a 7.2 voltage, blah, blah, blah. It matches the same settings as the Sony right. battery. So regardless of price, and there is a difference there, but regardless of price, what do you think on paper for this battery as a replacement to a first-party product? So I'm going to start where you started. I've had problems with three, with third-party batteries. So when I bought my 5D4, uh, retailer being unnamed, retailer I love, but the bundle that I got it with was with a third-party battery. The moment I got that battery and put it into the 5D4, I got an error on the battery. Worked in the 5D3, took it out, put it back in the four, and then it worked. And that happens to me constantly. I own three clone batteries and I have intermittent times where the camera doesn't like them. So I will only use Canon batteries for me. I'm not a Sony shooter. But this company and what they've laid this thing out to be, I want actually really badly. Now, let's state ahead of time, they specify the A7 III the A7R3 and the A9, they do not mention the new A7R4. They probably haven't I'm had gonna... the ability to test it yet, but that might be also uh, a problem here because just like you had with the Canon uh, battery not being compatible with uh, future cameras, um, there could be some secret sauce that Sony has built into every one of their batteries they could that's lock undocumented. It. And uh, in the newer cameras, they say, well, we're just going to send a signal to the battery from this undocumented protocol, and it's going to expect a response back. And if that response is not there, then this is a non-authentic battery. This is this kind of fingerprinting is not new. It's been used for years. Um, And this is kind of that uh, uh, ace up the sleeve of any manufacturer that wants to ensure authenticity. They just don't document it. Uh, And they they could even roll out a firmware update to cameras that will brick certain batteries or third-party accessories so there's always a risk there to some degree yeah but for me i want this thing there's a couple things it it does that are really interesting to me first of all it's going to be really rare anybody upgrades firmware in a battery but the fact that you can upgrade the firmware with this app which is available by the way for both android and ios uh very interesting the other thing it has a discharge function so if you're storing your batteries for long periods of time, it's not recommended generally that you store them at 100%. Same, by the way, if you're shipping them anywhere. But this has a discharge function where it will pull the battery down to 70%. That's if a you happy have multiple place for batteries, a battery. 
Yeah. Say that again? I said that's a happy place for a battery. You don't want to leave it at a full charge. You don't want to leave it completely empty either. Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 80% is what I've heard is a good place to leave a battery when it's not being used. Well, there's a couple of interesting things here. I'm wondering that I didn't see, and I'm curious, did you, it's not Wi-Fi, I'm guessing it's Bluetooth, but I don't know what the communication protocol is that the app can see it. Yeah, I couldn't find that information it. either. I'm assuming it's Bluetooth. It's got to be, but they're saying it gives 500 stills on an A9. Okay, but when you communicate with it and pull the app up, how much juice is that using as you're monitoring it? That would be an interesting thing to know. Well, it's the same thing with with my new car. If I bring up the app, uh, the the Tesla app, um, it wakes up the car. The entire car comes to life again, and it's going to drain the battery as a part of that process. No matter what electronics you're dealing with, it's got a sleep mode and it's got an awake mode. One's going to take more energy. Yeah, anything that's anything that's alert is is using current that you the whole point was do I have enough left to do the shoot. But the cool thing to me about smart battery technology is the the new protections that we can have. So this thing's got an overcharge protection, an overdischarge protection, an overcurrent or overvoltage protection and a short circuit protection. Those to me can be very handy because it's not I don't know anybody it's happened to Theoretically, though, a battery could damage your camera. But just knowing that this thing seems like it's safe, solid, and a good quality since I'm going from manufacturer to third party, everything I'm reading makes me think I'd be comfortable with this. I just wish I knew how much it was. Ah, well, so how much is the the Sony battery? Uh, so that, that if you were to buy a first party Sony battery, what do you think you're going to pay for that? Mm, 60 bucks. I think it's 70 uh, or, or 75. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that right now. Um, but if I, I'm pulling it up on the Nightcore store right now, this replacement battery is at a price of $44.95. So it's available That's for pre-order. It's listing on their website that it will be available uh, or the, their estimated arrival uh, to them before they start shipping them out is august 30th so that's and you're right it's about 80 bucks for the for the name brand right so about 80 dollars for the name brand you're just over 50 percent of that price here at 44.95 for one of these nightcore batteries that seems as full featured and the fact that you can do a firmware update on the battery they're probably hedging their bets thinking that you know what there's a chance sony has that secret protocol to brick batteries just do the firmware update and make it continue to be compatible in the future at a price of under 45 dollars for one of these I'd easily, if I was a Sony shooter, buy two or three of these in a heartbeat. Well, and again, you're not good. Don't expect to get firmware updates probably ever in the life of your battery. But the fact that you can for a third party, I don't care so much about a name brand, but for a third party, that to me is just a little bit of a safety net. Yeah. In going third party. And the only reason, again, why they would offer a firmware update is, uh, to the battery is to ensure compatibility with future cameras or future firmware updates to those cameras in case. Oh, Sony no, no, makes- there's other reasons they could find that their circuitry for that, that, that their algorithms or circuitry for measuring, uh, you know, some of the stuff that they're oh, giving they could. you is don't don't get me wrong. I mean, you'll find uh, you'll, you'll find that true in, in electric vehicles all the time, uh, as I've been yeah. learning. Uh, but in a battery, it's unlikely. It's so unlikely. I My opinion is that the firmware update feature is to ensure compatibility if Sony gets retaliatory about this. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Before but, you go to the next story, let me just tell you, uh, I looked up trim on third-party SSDs on Mac OS, uh-huh. and you actually can use uh, a feature called Trim Force 
It's a trim force command, and that will enable the trim function on third-party dress. Okay, so that does exist. So that, that software should not be too far behind uh, if you were to uh, to drink the Kool-Aid for ProGrade and uh, and find the usefulness for that. And again, right. I don't know. I, I We would need to have some independent third-party reviews of exactly what this would be in best and worst-case scenarios. And I look forward Agreed. to seeing that because uh, I, I think it's just a matter of time before that's in reviewers' hands and they pick it apart. Um, but thanks for going back to that, making sure we put a pin in it. And our last story, Steve, um, from, <laughs> from Petapixel. Instagram says viral meme about new content, quote, rule is a hoax. So there's been a chain letter going around and I get some chain letters in Facebook all the time, fewer in email. Uh, but, you know, chain letter is such an old, archaic term. The fact that this is still happening, uh, I, I weep for the gullible. Um, okay. So I'm going to read this, or at least one of the renditions of it, partly until I'm fed up with it. Okay. Uh, This is from an Instagram post. Uh, I guess they're posting text as a photograph. Don't forget, tomorrow starts the new Instagram rule where they can use your photos. Don't forget, deadline today, multiple exclamation points, um, it can be used in court cases in litigation against you. Everything you've ever posted becomes public from today, even, I'm emphasizing that because they capitalized even for no reason, uh, messages that have been deleted or the photos not allowed. It costs nothing for a simple copy and paste. Better safe than sorry. Channel 13 News talked about the change in Instagram's privacy policy. I do not give Instagram or any entities associated with Instagram permission to use my pictures, information, messages, or posts, both past and future. With this statement, I give notice to Instagram. It is strictly forbidden to disclose, copy, distribute, or take, blah, blah, blah. I'm giving up. Okay. Um, yeah. So, all right. I, I I'm throwing this amazing in because the, I, I can't believe you left this. out the Rome statute. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Uh, but yeah, I, okay. So the fact that this is even a thing, uh, and of course, uh, if, if you want to mention Roman law, one, one, three, four, five, two, six dash C five, five, seven, five, Steve, look that one up. I don't even know if that's a thing. Um, but okay. So, why are people afraid of Instagram possibly using their stuff? I also pulled up the Instagram terms of use because this is worth actually reading. This is what is in place right now and has been in place in some similar shape or form. I'm sure they revise this periodically, but this is how social media platforms have to operate. They need access to your data, to share it, to publicize it, because they got to embed an Instagram post or a tweet or whatever platform into another website. They have to have rights to do that. So here it is. And into an app. Well, exactly. And to message it to another person within that app. I mean, there are permissions required. Permissions that you give to us. This is from uh, one of their help pages that is their terms and conditions. As a part of our agreement, you also give us permissions that we need to provide the service. We do not claim ownership of your content but you grant us a license to use it. Nothing is changing about your rights and your content. We do not claim ownership of your content that you post on or through the service. Instead, when you share, post, or upload content that is covered by intellectual property rights, like photos or videos, uh, on or in connection with our service, you hereby grant us a non-exclusive 
royalty-free, transferable, sub-licensable, worldwide license to host, use, distribute, modify, run, copy, publicly perform, or display, translate, and create derivative works of your content, uh, in parentheses, consistent with your privacy and application settings. You could end this license at any time by deleting your content or account. However, content will continue to appear if you shared it with others and they have not deleted it. To learn more about how we use your information and how to control or delete your content, review the data policy and visit the Instagram Help Center. This is true of every platform anywhere that you know, it's true of Instagram and Facebook of course they're owned by the same company but it's also true of Twitter and Flickr and everybody else on the internet that needs to host content the language is not going to be identical but it means pretty well the same thing same thing everywhere you go on the internet and so don't be afraid of Instagram they've got the rights to do all of this stuff and they always have and what have they done with it Steve they've hosted their platform. They've used this because they would get roasted by the court of public opinion if they ever abused this in any way. And the last thing any social media network needs is a mass exodus of their platform. They would be investigated by Congress if they started misappropriating. And when I say misappropriating, they may clearly have the rights to do it. But if they started licensing people's shots for commercial ad campaigns, which in some ways they might be able to do, they'd be investigated and be roasted publicly. If, there, there's, if you yeah. were to post a photo to Instagram and then you're driving down the highway and you see that photo on a billboard advertising Instagram, or they could license it to a third party, they could be advertising a hemorrhoid cream for all that matters. And it's a photo of your mom on that billboard. Um, yeah, they, <laughs> there, there would be bigger issues and there would be public well, and all this, All and, the normal laws and rules still exist, right? Yeah. They would have to have a model release. But what I, what I want to stress out of this, because so so many of my friends did it. And on a couple of them, I put up saying, you know, this, this doesn't work. A couple things you got to know. Any service that you go to, any web service has to have a terms of service because when you upload your image, they have to store it on their servers. They have to be able to transfer that file to multiple redundant data centers. They have to be able to store that file in a backup. And here's a good example of licensing or sub-licensing, because you referenced sub-license. Yes, Instagram and Facebook are the same owner, but they're different companies. Well, and, so and they might use it, a third party like uh, Amazon Web Services to host certain content. Uh, they very well might. But yeah. I'm even talking for visual display. When you post to Instagram, you can log into your Facebook account and you can log into your Twitter account and you can upload to Instagram. And then it's not you sending it to Facebook and Twitter. It's their infrastructure that is transferring that file to a Twitter post or to a Facebook post. They need the rights to then put it on Twitter for just that reason, or Facebook for just that reason. You cannot walk into a television studio that before you walk in, you've been notified in line. There are signs outside the door saying, by being in this studio, you are understanding that videotaping is, or you know, television broadcast is in play and that your face and likeness will be broadcast and can be used. Sit in the audience of Saturday Night Live and go, oh, by the way, uh, I'm holding up a sign that says, based on those rules, no, you cannot use my likeness, well, which is effectively what this is. <laughs> your I entered the room not, with these rules, but yeah. I'm saying don't use your rules. 
Yeah, and 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 you holding up a sign complaining about the rules that you've already agreed to by virtue of you entering the room doesn't negate the rules that you passed by when you entered the room, right? Exactly. Um, and, 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 this, and a lot of people will this, take take issue with certain things. And, and I want to get your opinion in a second, but I, before I forget, um, the fact that they can use derivative works was something that a lot of people uh, were astounded. They can modify my work. They can they can change it and use it for their own purposes. Well, yes, if you're uploading an Instagram photo. That's not square. Okay. It's uh, vertical or horizontal to some degree. They got to crop it to make it square in the feed. And that is technically a derivative work because it's being modified. And they don't do that way. until after it's on their servers. Exactly. And so they have to do this as part of that process. This is nothing to be afraid of, people. If you're afraid of that, okay, get off the internet. Here, here, exactly. You know, and and here's my problem: is this is not difficult when you see this. First of all, Channel 13 News talked about it. I don't know any any major metropolitan area that has a Channel 13 News at this point, but it references the Rome Statute. The Rome Statute is actually the law, the treaty, to be more specific, that established an international or the international criminal court. It has literally nothing to do with Absolutely this. nothing to do whatsoever. Not a thing. <laughs> it's a Google search to go, ooh, Rome statute. They, that sounds like something that stands out. They could have read they could have referenced the Bern Convention as well, which has yes. to do with international recognition of copyright across borders, which also has absolutely nothing to do with this. It <laughs> it and and here's my thing. Again, if you are going to be on social media, unless it's a paid service, which there are some, right? If you're going to be on a free social media platform, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or any of the like, the old Google Plus, you're not paying for it. They're making money. They're selling ads based on what you are putting up. Yeah. You are the product. That's the key. The thing to be worried about is not how they're using your photos, although there are certain scenarios where, obviously, if you want to be able to take your fine art and sell it as as limited edition or you want to license it to somebody as exclusive, that's a problem if you've uploaded it to social media. Yeah. But your bigger concern should be you're the product and the data that they're collecting. Exactly. And that is going to be sold to people, sold to advertisers who want to market to people that like cats, right? You're posting a bunch of pictures of cats. Their algorithm detects that you like cats. They'll serve you ads for cat food. I mean, you are the product at that point. And if you are afraid of your privacy, privacy, I mean, I shouldn't say it doesn't exist. There are certain things that do exist and privacy should be, uh, should be heralded where it does exist. But if you are so afraid of your privacy in every possible way, uh, the internet is not a private place. There are so many people that are trying to identify you outside of any structure. It's tracked by ads, tracked by even, um, I, I, and this is changing in some of the latest browsers. Chrome is trying to uh, to obscure your identity. But if if you're browsing from website to website at the same time that's serving up ads, and it knows exactly what operating system you're using, exactly what web, web browser you're using, exactly what resolution of it screen you're using. It knows where you using, are because it can do an IP reverse trace. And, and, and exactly where you are and all of these things. It can figure out who you are without you even giving permission to do that. The internet is not a private place. And so don't pretend 
pretend that it is. Uh, Which brings us to our VPN ad. No. Okay. <laughs> well, but but it does bring us to something that I want to talk about before we get into the picks of the week, Steve, because uh, I, I want to talk about your uh, uh, your podcast, BehindTheShot.tv, and also reference that we have a, a Flickr group that I've noticed a few people starting to join. Well, I want to uh, yep. mention that again. Um, there is a Flickr group that I'll put in the show notes for BehindTheShot.tv that will be used for some yet uh, undisclosed purpose, but uh, be happy that you're there if you decide to join in, because uh, there's a very good chance that Steve and I might be working on a future project that would require people. The goal is that we are. Yeah, the goal we is just, that we, we are. We just want to get a bunch of people in there to pull from before we do. Exactly. And so uh, if you want to see our plans race ahead for whatever that project is going to be, you can help doing so by joining that Flickr group. And uh, so we'll, we'll leave it at that. We don't want to give too many details right now, but uh, uh, do our do us a favor. If I could ask a favor of you uh, is join that Flickr group. Cost you nothing. Takes a few minutes. If you've got a Flickr account, join in and uh, fun and frivolity will at some point. Ensue. And if you don't have a Flickr account, sign up for the free version. And go join the group. Yeah, exactly. Not hard. Uh, and uh, what, what's the uh, the latest stuff going on on the Behind the Shot podcast? Uh, Behind the Shot podcast at BehindTheShot.tv. The latest episode is with Andy Day. Uh, he's a... <coughs> excuse me. I'm having a coughing attack. Uh, he's a senior writer at F-Stoppers, but he shoots parkour. And we mentioned that and so, before. And and Andy, uh, I think that the first reason why why you stumbled across his work, Steve, uh, was we referenced an article that was written uh, f- uh, like on F Stoppers by him. And I remember your comments very specifically calling him out as a good photographer because he just in the in the research that you do for these uh, uh, for these stories, you research the authors on them. You are very thorough. Yeah, it was, and that was the it was an article on making money as a photographer and not making money as a photographer. And I wanted to know what he shot. So I went and looked at his work. He's an amazing photographer and he travels around and he shoots people doing parkour and just um, these amazing, his angles, his sense of space, his sense of, of using, you know, quote unquote white space or open space in a shot. So he's the latest episode. I just recorded last week with Juan Pons who you may know because he was the co-host with Rick Salmon on the old Digital Photo Experience podcast. That's right. And that may be out this Thursday. It may be two weeks after. It depends how fast I get my my episode for uh, Photoshop World done. Uh, I've got a brand new episode in there, a review of the printer that's behind me, which is the Pro 1000 from Canon, which I absolutely adore this printer. It's gotten me back into printing again. Uh, so there's a bunch of stuff up there. It's all at BehindTheShot.tv. Awesome. Thanks for uh, uh, making sure we're aware of that. I love uh, your podcast, by the way, just the way that you interact with people, the enthusiasm and, and asking the right questions to get, you know, the conversation going into the uh, the, the meaningful direction, the stuff that uh, a listener could, uh, you know, pull out valuable information from. It's not like you're just praising people. You're really probing for that useful content. And uh, and periodically a guest will say, as I, as I ask a question, they'll go, oh, wow, that's a good question. And every time that happens in the back of my head an angel gets their wings <laughs> that's great all right let, let's get into the uh the picks of the week um you know uh steve i'll let you go first okay so i almost picked this one last time last time i said do you want a microphone or a camera and i went with the uh osmo pocket the new osmo pocket which the reason i was assembling all of this 
<clears throat> was for Photoshop World for an interview kit that I wanted to do with my Zoom H6. I wanted an easy, fast way to just pull somebody that was walking by and say, can I interview you and get good quality audio and good quality video. So I used the Osmo Pocket for the video on a tripod or on a, a Joby or something like that, and sometimes handheld. But I needed microphones. And I didn't want to have to have a lavalier microphone clipped to their shirt with a wire going down and worry about wired mics. And then I saw Colin Smith of Photoshop Cafe review the little bad boy I'm holding in my hand, which is the Rode Wireless Go. That's smaller this than I thought too, it would be. I mean, I saw well, pictures of it, but I didn't have a frame of reference for size. He held these up on the show that he did. And, and, and even then, I didn't really get the the idea of just how freaking small these things are. They are the size, they're smaller than a matchbook, right? I mean, they're just tiny. They're thicker, but they're square-wise, they're tiny. And they have a clip, and one of them is the receiver, and it has an eighth-inch out jack. They both have a USB-C port on them for charging. It has an eighth-inch jack to come out and go into your camera. So you can mount this thing on your camera, put it on the hot shoe, whatever you want, wire it right into your DSLR or whatever camera you're using and get audio right in the camera. Now, there is no easy audio in on an Osmo Pocket. So here's what I do. I use my Zoom H6 and I put this over the receiver by the Zoom H6 and I have the eighth inch jack go into an XLR adapter and go into that. But the microphone is the cool part. So same size, <clears throat> but it has a built-in omnidirectional lav mic built into this. So when I looked at somebody and said, can I interview you? I went to my friends at Platypod and interviewed Larry. And really this whole thing to me was a proof of concept that this kit would work. I clipped this on the lanyard for his Photoshop world badge. And that's it. He's mic'd. And I'm looking awesome. forward to this conversation. Uh, Larry is a great guy. And, uh, and so the fact that he was there and talking to you uh, and, and done so with ease right? I mean, you don't want well, any barriers to get in the way of this random impromptu. Uh, okay, let's get this done. It's not like you're going to pull somebody aside, you know, do do, do the whole rigmarole. Of, okay, we're going to test the mic. We're going to, you know, uh, put, you know, fish something up your shirt. You know, it, right, this exactly. is much simpler. It's all self-contained. It's a clip. They've even got little windscreens that clip on that also fall off really easily, but they give you two of them per mic, which, or at least I got two per mic. But here was what really sold me on the Rode Wireless Go. This is an omnidirectional microphone. So the pickup pattern is fairly wide. And I was worried about noise. So I wanted to have an actual cardioid pattern mic clip on lav just to be safe. Well, right next to the mic element is an eighth inch jack. If you plug an external wired lavalier microphone into that, this just becomes a wireless body pack. So... I went looking for cardioid lavalier mics. Apparently difficult to find an inexpensive one. I found a sure and one. I, just I, I use one of those uh, in my uh, uh, Rode uh, Video Makers kit. Uh, yes. Yes, but th that's much, much bigger than this setup. Well, it's bigger, but and, and the Shure is a little more expensive, but having a cardioid lav mic, it still picks up other stuff. But I went looking, and on Amazon, I found a company called The Sound Professionals. And I just want to mention them because it's not a commercial by any means. When I reached out to them on Amazon after placing an order for two Audio-Technica cardioid mics with eighth-inch jacks on them, the soonest I could get shipping was the day after I left for Photoshop World. 
So I reached out and said, I don't see any faster shipping. And they said, order on our site. You can get faster shipping. Okay, cool. Canceled the Amazon order. Or actually, I said, I'll cancel it. They canceled it for me before I had a chance. I went and I ordered on their site and I emailed them to say, I ordered it with three day. The day it should have shipped, it hadn't shipped yet. And so I went to call them and instead of a call line, they let you text them. Cool. Within five minutes, I had an answer back saying, we tried to order a Rode Wireless Go microphone because we custom put our terminations on and we wanted to make sure the wiring on our eighth inch termination was right. That's so a they held it a day. <clears throat> then they couldn't find the wiring. They couldn't get the go. I got on phone with support, texted them the wiring they shipped it the next day and upgraded me to two day at no charge. UPS had a truck breakdown, <laughs> delayed it for a day. I picked it up at the UPS store and instead, because they wouldn't deliver it to my house the day I needed it. And I said to them, this isn't fair. This company upgraded me. Actually, it ended up they upgraded me to overnight at one point. Be oh, that was the other thing. Two day shipping. UPS sent it back to them, said the address was wrong. Ugh. And they showed the driver and went, no, this is the address. So then they upgraded it to overnight shipping on their own. And then UPS had a truck breakdown. So I told UPS, you need to refund this company the money. And I just had to give them a shout out because I will do business with a company that has service. And they're no bending over backwards to make this the <clears throat> best possible solution for you as a customer. For two Audio-Technica lav mics. And the mics were a fantastic price. Okay, uh, mention the name and the website again. Let's make sure we give them the proper plug. The company is The Sound Professionals, and the website is soundprofessionals.com. And guys, I don't even know your name, but you were just freaking awesome. I had to get you out there. I love dealing with companies like that. If I need to buy more audio gear, I'm going to see what they've got. Uh, and look at them first because uh, yeah, they're in New Jersey it, it, and, and well, okay. And that's not far from me. Uh, you know, it's not on the other side of the continent. Uh, and, and it is for you. I mean, you're in California. So, yeah. Um, but uh, that's great to hear a, uh, a success story with customer service in the internet era. That is uh, an anachronism. It shouldn't be, but I'm, I'm glad that you had that experience and thanks for sharing it, Steve. That's awesome. Yeah. I just, I had to, cause it was, it was above and beyond. Awesome. And, uh, and my pick of the week, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit selfish here. Uh, as I mentioned, I was at the Out of Chicago, uh, Out of Longwood Gardens conference that the Out of Chicago people put on. I had so much fun. And uh, I've been invited back uh, next year in 2020. They are going to be doing a, um, a similar uh, garden uh, macro photography conference uh, that will be at the Chicago Botanic Gardens. I don't think you can register for Ooh. it yet, uh, but the dates are available. If you go to uh, outofchicago.com, um, then you'll be able to find that. And uh, uh, it is, let's see what the dates are here. It is August 23rd to 27th of 2020. And uh, I had so much fun at this one. I'm really looking forward to that one. I don't know what the entire lineup of speakers is going to be, but that doesn't matter. It's going to be a ton of fun. If you want to see me at a conference before then, uh, I will be uh, actually this October. I will be in Princeton, New Jersey with the Princeton Photo Workshops people, and I'll be doing a day-long seminar and a water droplet refraction workshop. And you can find that information at my website at doncom.ca slash workshops. Uh, both of those would be great to go to. Um, I mean, I, I just love meeting photographers and, and teaching, and, and 
I, I just, I'm coming off this high of inspiring people uh, during this past week. And uh, it's just, it's given me energy. And I've got an inbox full of uh, questions, people enthusiastic. Well, what was this thing that you were using and that and the other that I have to go and get back to, uh, which will be a ton of fun. So uh, the Out of Chicago Botanic Garden Conference uh, in August of 2020 and the uh, Princeton Photo Workshops folks that are hosting me for another year. Uh, great guys. They, um, they've had me for, I don't know, I, th- I think this is year number four, if I'm not mistaken, in a row that I've gone down to Princeton to do these workshops. Every time it's a little bit different. This time we're doing a day-long seminar, uh, which I haven't done in the U.S. before, uh, and uh, I promise it'll be inspiring. So uh, those are my picks of the week. Again, I'm being a little bit selfish this week. Please don't mind that. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm also going to be selfish in, in one more way. It, it's not my pick of the week. It's just that uh, there's going to be a slight hiatus on Photo Geek Weekly. Um, uh, uh, I know, no. shock and awe. Well, I'm, I'm just going to be away from my computer for a while. That's all. Uh, my wife and I are going back to her home country of Bulgaria for a couple of weeks. We go back every year to visit family and friends. And I'll be working on my book when I'm over there. Um but I won't have uh, the same access to the internet or my wonderful microphone and recording studio here. So I have something to put in the interim. I've recorded another episode of my podcast of Inside the Lens uh, with Rick Salmon. Uh, and he's talking about uh, w- w- with his wonderful wife about travel photography uh, and how to best prepare yourself, the ins and the outs, the successes and the failures. And just some tips to really help. And it's uh, kind of apropos, I'm, I'm going to be traveling and I'll be posting uh, a podcast on travel photography. Uh, and that will be at some point over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I'll put it in the Photo Geek Weekly stream. Usually that would be a separate stream for the Inside the Lens uh, podcast. But I'll just make sure that I bridge the gap with that so people can, uh, can hear these conversations continue on. If you're not familiar with the Inside the Lens podcast, it is a deep dive into one specific topic. Top, talking with a professional in that area. And so Rick Salmon is a great guy, a wonderful instructor, very articulate, and uh, and you'll learn a lot from that discussion, or at least you'll well, feel like you want to go Well, and nobody ever talks about Susan. Su- nobody Susan ever mentions Susan. Amazing. Susan is an amazing photographer. And, and so uh, it's funny because in that conversation, Susan, uh, I mean, I, I, I give her the reins at some point, and she just hits it out of the park in terms of yeah. what you can do to accomplish things without getting terribly wound up in equipment and gear and specs and everything else. And we always have to remind ourselves that photography can be a simple thing. We can we can do it on, I, I don't want to say a low-tech scale because it's high-tech. It's just not complex. It's easy. And uh, right. we have to just understand that those barriers are sometimes barriers we put in place ourselves um, uh, and they don't necessarily have to be there. So it'll be a great chat for people to listen to. All right, that good. I, I think wound, uh, winds down this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thanks again for jumping into this conversation, Steve. It's always wonderful to talk to you. Always great to uh, listen to your podcast as well, Behind the Shot. And for everybody that's still listening, it has been an hour and 25 minutes. So I believe it's now time to get out and shoot. Mm-hmm.